Hello fellow homebrewers, JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brewbuilt Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full 2-inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brewbuilt line of options and add like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Uni Tanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brewbuilt Conicals. You can trust Brewbuilt with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brewbuilt at morebeer.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. day everybody welcome to the session i'm your host justin crosley back in the studio today been doing a lot of shows lately which has been fun and some amazing guests today is no different i've got jc tatro from trillium out of uh well several places now but uh mainly boston right jc yeah that's right yeah we started our um our first brewery on congress street in Boston, the Four Point Channel neighborhood. That's right. Okay, back in 2013, right? March 2013, so 10 years ago next week. Nice, nice. All right, we're going to learn all about that and the growth that Trillium has experienced since then. Uh, first up, let me just thank our sponsor, More Beer. They've been our sponsor today and every single day, as you know. Go to morebeer.com, check them out. They support not just home brewers, like I've been telling you all these years, but pro brewers now, too. You can get all sorts of goods from More Beer. In fact, if you're a pro brewer, uh, go see them at the Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville. If you're a home brewer, come see us at the uh, at HomebrewCon in San Diego and thank them. Thank all our sponsors. A couple of announcements real quick. Spring Brews Festival tickets are still on sale. It's coming up fast. It's uh, March 25th. Go to thebrewingnetwork.com and get your tickets. I officially have 60 breweries, which is full capacity. I can't fit any more breweries in the park. Although if on any given year, JC, you said you'd come to my Spring Brews Festival, I would make room for you. I'd kick out five breweries to make room for you. Just see. No, no, no. Make, make it 61 and maybe I'll be there. <laughs> there we go. One of these years. One of these years. Um, so go to thebrewingnetwork.com, get your tickets for that. 
Also, uh, if you're a professional brewer or an aspiring professional brewer, come to the California Craft Beer Summit. I'll be there. It's March 19th through the 22nd. Go to CaliforniaCraftBeer.com and get your tickets. Uh, Lots of amazing speakers and seminars there to get you up to speed on all sorts of things brewing. Plus, a lot of hospitality events that we'll be hanging hanging out at, too. I'm doing a little talk with Chris White, which I'm excited about. Um, So come see us there. Go to CaliforniaCraftBeer.com to check it all out. All right. Hey, let's get right to it, JC. I'm just so uh, happy to have you on the show. And uh, I don't have the beer in front of me yet, but I will the next segment. You actually, uh, I was lucky enough to get some some Trillium out here all the way on the West Coast for uh, SF Beer Week. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, it's been cool to be able to kind of shake some volume loose and send them out to like these really cool beer events across um, across the country uh to our friends that know how to take care of beer properly and can appreciate it for what it is um for sure yeah it's it's a super fun special thing for us too and it must be unique because i mean let's just kind of dive into that like i mean historically you guys had some some fairly instant success and it seems like you probably couldn't get much beer out of the tasting room for the first several years yeah well that happened i mean the instant success is sort of (laughs) relative we signed the lease of in january 2011 and we didn't get open until March of 2013. Wow. So, you know, it feels like instant to a lot of folks, but man, it was a real slog when we, we first got going. We, Esther and I rent, you know, we, we started with the little savings that we had, uh, which wasn't much. So it didn't take too much for us to run out of money. Uh, we opened with two 10, 10 barrel fermenters. So it was sort of like a, an unintentional limited supply situation and, you know, Oh, you can't get it. That means I want it more. Mm-hmm. And we were just, you know, scrambling to catch up ever since day one. So it was, yeah, that wasn't like one of those intentional, we're going to make supply limited sort of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell the story to folks who, who come along um, and kind of join the team. Now uh, one of the worst ex- experiences I've ever had uh, with Trillium was on our second weekend of being open. Uh, we only had, you know, enough for maybe like 50 growler fills. Cause that's all we were doing at that, at that point in time. Wow. Um, 50, 64 ounce growler fills of two or maybe three different beers. And I was, uh, standing in line, um, with folks who were waiting for us to open. And I was telling them how much beer we had left <laughs> and, um, basically did the countdown. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. There's only enough up until this person. Right. And then everybody looked at me like I was the biggest asshole in the world. Oh no. It's 4.45 on a Friday. How do you not have any beer left? What kind of place is this? And they just like turned around and walked away angry. And I was like, <laughs> I can never do this ever again. We have to figure this out. This is the worst thing. They're like, I didn't know. We didn't open the brewery to say no to people and like disappoint people. And right. I had no, I couldn't think of any way to tell people they were on their way to excitedly on their way on their Friday to come get beer from the new brewery. They were out of beer. It was awful. It was really awful. That's so awful. I can. So uh, in the beginning of the brewing network, our very first, um, broadcast. And back then, podcasts didn't even exist. It was you, you had to listen live. It was live streaming on the internet. And I did months of hype and promotion, not knowing if anyone would care or if it would work. And it worked so well that on our first broadcast, the servers just crashed. They just, they crashed. (laughs) People were trying to consume this new product and they couldn't. And I remember feeling crushed, like 
I, like I had screwed, like they're never coming back. Why would anybody yeah. ever come back? I just, I told them this is a thing I do. And the one thing I told them I do, I didn't do. Like running right. out of fear, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. a terrible I didn't, feeling. I didn't appreciate to the degree that, um, you know, the, the human psyche is a very interesting thing. It's sort of like the idea of why they, uh, nightclub owners will just make people wait outside uh, when there's nobody inside just to make sure, make it seem like there's this crazy <laughs> demand for something that's, yeah. Not real, right? Um, our like our was ours was certainly not by intention, but we were way out of balance sure. for supply and demand. And because we said, "Oh no, we're sold out," it just kind of exacerbated the problem. And that was for for years we were way out of balance there. So sure. that was that was the stuff that kept me up at, at night. We didn't like I said, we didn't open a brewery to say no to people or right. limit things. Um, so we worked extraordinarily hard to knock that down and we're finally back into a great balance where, um, we can make the breadth, uh, of all the different stuff. You know, I'm still a home brewer at heart. So we get to make the full breadth of styles of beers that is as welcoming to all lovers of all different styles and up and down the, the catalog. It's something that we're super proud of now and we're, we're still growing. Um, and we're still kind of creating uh, experiences around that. So you you clearly have a production brewery now where you're able to oh, yeah. fulfill this demand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. How, how many? How, how large is that facility? How many barrels? Oh, um, I you know I think uh, we're making about fifteen somewhere between fifteen and seventeen thousand barrels of of work per year. So after losses and all that, it's sure. you know yeah. it's it's less than that number, um, which is which is like. You know, that's kind of the Goldilocks zone for us because we're able to um, make sure that we, we make good enough size batches so that stuff doesn't run out immediately, um, but stays fresh. You know, so like it's not like we've got, you know, even three month old IPAs, you know, by the time the batch runs out or anything like that. So, right. Um, but we're still have got enough seller capacity to 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 uh, to, to have uh, lagering times up to two months and, you know, do it properly and not rush things through. You know, we've got enough uh, seller capacity to be able to have a spontaneous program. It's sort of like, you know, it's like a it's sort of like a playground for anybody who's who loves all all things that are beer. Yeah, we're able to do them all in the right scale and size that kind of matches what um, what our customers want from us. Oh, that's see, that's great and a, and a smart way to do it. Uh, you know, we've had brewers in here before. I remember having Tony McGee in here. Um, just before he sued Sierra Nevada or some crazy thing he did. Uh, but he he was talking about the growth of Lagunitas, and he was expressing that he was in a constant state of catching up, uh, both financially and uh, and liquid. I mean, and, and that he, of course, they put out experimental beer. Of course, they ended up with a barrel program. But the way he described it, it was very different than your description, where you now sort of have this flexibility in this playground. He described it as this, like, constant state of catching up, um, yep. which sounds very yep. different than Trillium's trajectory. Yeah, I'm not super well-versed on, the, on, on like, you know, the history uh, that, that Tony went through. Um, you know, I think those that first year or so, for Esther and I, it was entirely unsustainable. We were way too small. We were working way too hard. Hmm. Um, our team was working too hard. We're just kind of spinning our wheels in this really tiny space. It was 2,300 square feet, our original oh, breweries. Wow. Kind of ins- like pretty insane. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Esther and I had uh, two kids under two years old uh. and full-time jobs. So we were just like, you know, 
oh man, our pupils are just dilating. Like, yeah, this is awesome, but man, it's really not awesome. <laughs> we try to <laughs> right. we try to figure out like uh, how to, but it was so exciting at the same time because people were just really, really supporting us in an incredible way. Um, but we knew that we were just we were we were already burnt out, and that the only way for us to get out of that that cycle was to grow. Um, but we didn't want to go down the path of um, growing to scale because that just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I, we knew that the beers that we were making um, were, for lack of a better word, fragile. You know, we we did kind of early on. We were doing some tests for our hoppy beer and um, realized pretty quick if if it fell outside of a cold chain, something like what, what what's now known as hazier or New England IPA. Man, it falls apart quick. Yeah. So if if we were to um, kind of go to scale, you know, you go to you go to the grocery store, you go to you go to bottle shops. It's just a you know you can't refrigerate everything. Yeah. So it would just kind of not be what it needs to be, and that that would, you know it didn't feel right to us. So it certainly wouldn't help. Yeah, yeah. It would like maybe it would have been awesome for a little while, and it yeah. would have flown off the shelves and all that, but it just didn't. Um, didn't seem like a sustainable thing to us. It didn't really necessarily interest us either. Uh, we, we were much more focused on on creating hospitality experience and having it be a special thing when you came to visit us. Uh, you know, there should be a sense of place kind of wherever you go in the world. It feels like you should kind of know where you are, not just be a copy paste of, yeah. you know, any other city or any other town. It should, it should have its own identity. And we, um, we felt like we might have we might have a little piece of that as being a little a little bit of the identity um for what the boston beer boston beer scene could be about and be an exciting thing for people to come visit us so sure. we had that we had that we had that signal kind of early and uh we had no idea what that meant <laughs> we just kind of took one step at a time and try to address the huge problem that was in front of us which is like obviously you can't run a brewery that's sustainable out of 2300 square feet so then the next step was for us to uh, open a production brewery outside of, of boston in canton massachusetts and that was a 16,000 square foot um okay. brewery and you know we went from 10 and 20 barrel tanks to to 90 barrel tanks and that just seemed like wow i can't even imagine filling one of these things <laughs> never mind selling all the beer right um but thank god we did that instead of kind of going to 30 barrel tanks or something like that we have just been right back in that in that same situation. Sure, but there's got to be something terrifying even in that. Like you said, you can't imagine moving that amount of beer. It's a gamble of sorts, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> I, I like to I like to think of ourselves as being conservative, but obviously we're not. Like we started a, a brewing <laughs> business. Yeah. yeah. Like total maniacs when we were in our early 30s and like kids and careers, like what a crazy move that was. Yeah. And then we just kept doubling down on it. But um you know, the business model was great. Our customers were coming right to us and we didn't have to wait 60 days for a distributor. Like, you know, it was, it was awesome. What so, were your former careers? Oh, uh, so Esther, she, she did a, a, a number of things. She's, she's got her MBA in business analytics, but, um, Esther's, your, Esther's own, your wife and business partner, she, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, 
but she followed her own passion. It's, you know, obviously she's uh, a huge part of why Trillium even exists, but she followed her passion. She started um, uh, a fitness business where she had a team and she, you know, did uh, various fitness programs uh, across multiple communities in, in the Boston area. Um, and she loved that and she was doing really well, well with it until like Trillium really, <laughs> really needed her badly. Yeah. So um, it, to a degree, she was very sad to leave her business, um, but also very excited as to what Trillium could mean in terms of growing the team and developing um, everything that we've built so far. Okay. Uh, and I was um, I was in clinical trial research. So my background's in biology and biochemistry. And um, I used to uh, manage um, clinical trials, mostly in in, uh, in late stage development. So things that had already been on the market and um, uh, different physicians had different ideas about how to use something that was already approved in a novel or interesting way. Okay. Uh, and they would, you know, submit for grants and, you know, uh, conduct clinical trials for that. Sounds like the perfect background for your brewing to me yeah i mean you know everything that we do it's it's a science experiment to to at its at its heart and it, and it requires um you know uh thoughtful use of the scientific design and execution of a of a you know ask ask a question and try to answer it um with a theory about what what might come sure. um based on the different parameters and try to control for all things right all right well before we dive into the beer uh, as part of this history too uh where did the name come from Trillium. Oh, so yeah, I'm a giant uh, uh, botany nerd. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Self-described, I guess. Um, so I used to, uh, you know, I used to be the the ten <clears throat> year old, twelve year old kid who would kind of just be pouring through um, all of my mom's uh, landscaping and um, kind of like these almost like encyclopedias that she would have about different uh, different uh, plants with native species and tr- shrubs and trees. And all that sort of stuff, kind of a normal thing for a ten-year-old yeah. to be doing in the winter time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I used to love when the seed catalogs came in, and you know that was just—I don't know—it always just was an incredible thing to me. And then everything would wake up um, in the spring, and um, you know, all the things I was reading about in the catalogs and in the in, in the in the books um, would be kind of uh, waking up all around me, and I'd be able to identify all the all the, all the different things that were growing. So Trillium Amazing. was a very unique. Um, uh, native New England woodland wildflower that um, had this incredible symmetry and balance to it that, um, you know, even as a kid, it's just, I just kind of knew it was a very special and unique thing. There's sort of nothing else in the, in the plant world that was Hmm. uh, similar to that. And, um, you know, it just, to me, it served as a, as a really cool symbol for what we were trying to achieve um, uh, with with our beer. So actually that was the, this was back in the day in the, in the blog days and you kind of put together a home brewing blog and I would, you know, I just need to, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like a, uh, the stereotypical thing of like home brewers, like you're all, all you want to do is talk about beer and brewing to people. And like, most people don't want to hear about it, right? So you want to you want to make sure you're talking to the right audience, and yeah. kind of the only way for me to get it out was a, it was a, like in a homebrewing blog to find people that could identify with what it is I wanted to even I even cared about, you know? Yeah. So I named my homebrewing blog that, and then eventually, you know, um, through Esther's example and support, and, and kind of starting her own business and making me realize it was possible to. Um, have uh, a career that matched and kind of lined up with your passions. Yeah, you know, Trillium turned into the into the beers that we made for our wedding, and then eventually um, our business here. 
That might be the best explanation for a brewery name I've heard on this show in all my years, man. That's a great explanation. <laughs> yeah. Cool. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, man. Uh, do you have it tattooed to your body at Trillium anywhere? I, I have zero tattoos. Okay. I, I was always... Um, I was always the kid that was like, oh, maybe I'll get a tattoo. What would I want to be on my body for the rest of my life? Yeah. And then a year would go by and I'd be like interested in totally different things. And we're like, oh, uh, and then another <laughs> right. year would go by. I'd be interested in totally different things. So I just yeah. never did. <laughs> yeah. I got over that years ago. You just mark it as, well, that was just a different chapter. That's all. You can put the new yeah, thing yeah, on yeah. too. Yeah. Well, you've, uh, you've taken away one of my random questions for later in the show because I like to ask, like, what are you super into that, uh, that we don't know about? And now we know. Botany. Oh, I've got, I've got plenty of other things. So okay. we can talk about something else. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I'll still throw it in there. Well, and this leads uh, to a question I have about that I'm fascinated by an, another part of your, your growth. Um, you guys have a, a farm, and and it sounds to me, it, both in what you've just said and, and a lot of reading I've done about you, that you, you always wanted to be a farm brewery. And so could you maybe define what that means to you, to, to be a farm brewery? And then tell me about this farm project. And by the way, I'm originally from Connecticut, so when oh, I wow. saw that it was in Connecticut, I'm like, oh, this looks like a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, we... Um uh, you know, we always envisioned ourselves to be a, a New England farmhouse brewery. Kind of hard to do when you're in the middle, of, in the middle of the city, right? Right. So, but we had to start somewhere. <clears throat> we didn't have a farm left to us by our family. We're not independently wealthy to be able to just kind of throw down at a farm. Um, just wasn't feasible. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but you know, you need to start with a vision and to be able to kind of um, do things to embody it along the way. So we we had always made farmhouse beers. Um, you know, I, uh, it's hard to talk to somebody who's really into beer and not feel the romance and pull of the farmhouse mm. uh, beer origins and its approach to um, approach to terroir and, and kind of using what the land gives you that year uh, in your beer. And it might be different. It might be different this year versus that year. And um, you kind of hedge all your bets and have a, a, a multitude of things planted so that you can um, uh, you can have that flexibility. So. Uh, yeah, we started with that vision. You remember in the early 2010s? Is that the right way to say that? I'm not I really think sure. So. 2000, yeah, 2010s. That's better um, than I hate the, the the aughts when people just call the earlier than that the aughts. Yeah, the teens. It's fine. <laughs> okay, uh, that was that. Th- those beers were um, were actually kind of you know to a lot of folks kind of new and exciting as Belgian beer. Really, the imports were really kind of pouring into and maturing. Um, uh, in in the U.S. beer culture, uh, I had actually been doing quite a bit of traveling to Europe as well for work, uh, and I'd peel off any moment possible to go um, to go visit some breweries or just try beer that I, we otherwise didn't have access to um, in the U.S. So, um, kind of learning about that, loving the beers, and having that um, kind of that innate desire or tie to. Uh, to agriculture and botany and kind of all things related. It just, you know, clicked in my head. Hmm. If we were to ever open a brewery, it would be a, a New England uh, farmhouse brewery, but sort of like a, with a m- more modern approach and kind of not necessarily uh, uh, tied or beholden to only traditional uh, approaches, but mm-hmm. to kind of always be looking forward and to be able to reference uh, those, those approaches. So, um, you know, we, uh, being the the intrepid home brewer and you know the the 
uh, beer nerd that I was, I cultured wild microbes from the grape skins from the vineyard where Esther and I were married in, in Stonington, Connecticut, and that became our uh, our mixed micro um, expression early days until we were able to kind of one uh, one day have our own farm, start our own spontaneous program, yeah, um, and develop develop things that way. So to have um, to have a farm about five. Five years into our existence was way faster than I thought was yeah. ever going to happen, um, and there's a pretty massive learning curve. Dare I say it's actually much more complex <clears throat> to run a diversified uh, uh, vegetable and small small grain program than it is to run a brewery. I uh, would guess. You know, yeah, uh, you know you can control the, the temperature on a fermenter. You know. Yeah. You can decide. <laughs> you can decide how much yeast you're putting in. You can decide how much nutrient and oxygen, and you know it's a very controlled thing. And it is quite the opposite of yeah. that for farming. And you're, you know, you're effectively farming one species um, for you know most most beers uh, of yeast, and you know you've got 30, 40, 50 different species of plant you're trying to grow in um, in 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 the soil with billions of different microbes. Sure. So there's tons of Tons of different levels of complexities there, so we're we're learning and growing uh, figuratively and and you know actually yeah uh, at the farm until we um, get a sound foundation uh, to be able to feel comfortable and co- confident that okay we've got this under our belts we know what we're doing and then we could build a hospitality program there too without compromising one or the other while maintaining the rural nature of the community that we're in sure. as well. Was your yeah. was your scientific background and your your interest in botany? This is kind of a weird question, but was it enough to that you felt qualified to to dive into agriculture, or did you were you like I, I don't know, man? We're just going to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great way of question uh, of asking the question instead of what the you know what what are you thinking? Are you, how how could you possibly uh, approach and such a complex discipline that would require more of you than um, than is feasible. And how do you split yourself up between brewing, hospitality, running a business, being a dad, being a husband, being a friend, being a son, and oh, you're going to run a, a, a farm yeah. um, that's over an hour away from where your house is? And the answer to that is you can't do any of those things nearly as well as if you were to solely focus on them. So, um, you know, with, with everything else, you, you, you need to surround yourself, uh, with folks who know more than you mm-hmm. that, that have strengths that you don't have. Um, and you just build on that. Uh, that being said, I also fully immerse myself into all the other things. So the stuff I do for fun, um, is to, is to take a master class in market gardening mm-hmm. with my free time. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not a go and play poker with the guys kind of person, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just, I, I tend to, I don't know, my work and fun are two, two in the same sort of thing. So, um, it's a lot of self-taught and a lot of experiment, um, experience kind of laying on top of each other and surrounding yourself with, with people that know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, those are kind of my philosophies too. I was raised like not the not the um the stereotypical, oh, you can do anything, son. Like it actually wasn't like that. It was I was raised to figure it out, 
Like I was, you know, if I was asking my folks about something, they would hand me a manual, right? Like it was, you know, it was a, so I have, I I sort of relate to you in the sense that I'm like, well, but I like it and I want to, and I'm going to figure it out. I'm, I'm at least smart enough to figure it out, but I've also always, uh, in fact, the Brewing Network's a a perfect example, surrounded myself with people smarter than me uh, to, to help me, to help me do that. But you can only take on, I think, massive challenges like that if you have that sort of mindset. Like, not that someone's going to do it for me per se, but we are going to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and kind of be realistic. And, and um, you know, I, th- th- this is probably my, my personal fatal flaw. I'm always, um, I always, always overestimate what I'm actually capable of in terms of not necessarily understanding or grasping a concept, but actually like how many hours there are in the day. Yeah. You know, yeah. I used to be, um, uh, in probably still to some degree is a very frustrating thing for Esther's like, Hey, you said you were going to be done with that thing. Like four hours ago, where'd you go? And I was like, yeah, it, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be it was right. my first time doing it. So and like, all right, I've heard this before. And like, yeah, sorry. I didn't text. <laughs> yeah, totally. I understand that as well. Yeah. So the farm is currently a working farm, but it's not yet. Uh, and, and is it, and it's not yet part of the hospitality experience, but is it uh, feeding ingredients into the brewery yet, or or any of your uh, functions? Yeah, so we we this uh, this is our four yeah fourth season um, uh, running the farm the, the agricultural program there. So uh, growing ingredient for our two our two kitchens, one in Fort Point and and one in Kenton. Uh, you know, mixed vegetable program there, and uh, early couple of seasons we ran some test plots for small grains and heirloom corn and kind of scaled those up over the last few seasons one of the tricks um for small grains as compared to vegetables you know you can pick a pick a tomato with your hand and put it in a crate and then bring it to the kitchen um not really able to do that with barley or rye right um yeah so you need specialized harvesting equipment um if you're serious about it and um, with the way that agriculture has gone in the world, there's effectively no new small scale, uh, small grain harvesting equipment. I see. So we were able to able to purchase a uh, a combine from a uh, from a farmer in I think it was Ohio, not Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, you know, it was an old it was an old clunker, all mechanical. But you know, this was something that I put in front of our team, our, our facilities team. Do you guys feel comfortable? purchasing this mechanical combine harvester with no computers um you know it's belts and gear driven kind of stuff and if we need to fabricate a part and you know and replace the rusted this and that and everybody was up for the challenge and we were able to get it online and and run it through the rye fields and and harvest our first uh our first rye and we lent it to our neighbor um who runs mostly dairy farm last season and he was able to to he, you know he grew out a test plot of corn themselves mm-hmm. and um you know in conversation with us saying yeah we'd, we'd love to be able to buy uh buy corn from you and they said all right we'll grow some and barred our combine put the corn head on and we bought twenty thousand pounds of corn from them amazing uh, last year so yeah we're, we're excited we're, we're part of the um <clears throat> uh, we're part of the founding members of uh the northeast grain shed alliance it's it's a way to um get uh like-minded folks within the uh, a grain shed economy and that's you know Brewers, bakers, distillers, academia, farmers, kind of up and down the supply chain and uh, maltsters and um, 
it's a way to uh, to figure out how we be- can become a little bit more self reliant. Sure. Uh, with small grain production, and um, and uh, do something similar to like what Freestyle Farms does, and make kind of shorten that communication chain up to make sure that farmers are are growing what brewers want. Right. And vice versa. Yeah. And um, doing it at the right scale and the right quality. And, you know, if we can shorten that communication ch- chain up between farmers and uh, bakers and distillers and so on and so forth and uh, grow the varieties that work for everybody um, and get a, a, a good price point for, you know, and kind of instead of exporting that economy out to different parts of the world. Um, we can be more self-reliant and, and uh, enjoy some of the economic benefits around that. And I think everybody generally would prefer that their their beer yeah. and food are from the area that they're in. There's kind of a sense, again, that sense of place. So we're, we're um, it's, you know, kind of goes back to our original uh, vision and, and mission. We're not here to, to be Trillium by ourselves. We want to really be uh, <clears throat> deeply embedded in the communities that we're in. Is It, it sounds like the goal isn't that... 100% of your ingredients would come from these small farms. You're just, but it's a supplement and it's a, it's a piece of it. It's a, a healthy part of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's for any, for any uh, restaurant that's purporting to be self-sufficient mm. uh, is not telling the truth. I it's, totally wondered about that where people are like a hundred percent of our ingredients come from our farm. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Absolutely not. Even yeah. if you're in, you know, Southern California or whatever, it is, impossible yeah absolutely impossible okay yeah yeah <laughs> and then uh and i don't want to we have so much to cover but i am curious where's the grain being processed after you you harvest it it has to be kilned and such right well yeah if you're gonna um if you're gonna then malt it then yeah, that's okay. that's an, an, an additional step so um uh so there's two approaches there you can you know on a super small scale without the infrastructure you can do something like, you know, floor malting and, mm-hmm. you know, get up every six hours and rake it and turn it. And, you know, it's I'm not asking our team to do something like that at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, having gone to witness what that actually is at places like uh, Hill Rock in, in New York, and I, I've, I've seen floor malting happening. And, you know, if you've got the team and you've got the right people, so you're not asking people to get up at two in the morning to rake the malt, and you can do that. But, you know, you certainly can use unmalted, uh, unmalted grain uh, as a portion uh, of a grist, okay. no problem. So is that yeah. what you've done so far? Pretty much is use unmalted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we, yeah we've used um, you know we've used some uh, some some corn uh, as part of a grist in several loggers. Uh, you know, so we we grow Danko rye as well. So yeah, we use it both in both the uh, the the food and uh, and beer program. You know, I'll be uh, you know just starting out as a very small percentage of what we do um kind of symbolic in nature till now but this year we're growing 25 acres each uh of rye and heirloom corn so that's that's a real quantity and that's going to be um a decent percentage of our overall uh grain use actually primarily in our in our distilling program because uh like i said to add on that infrastructure for for malting yeah that quantity that's that's another discipline that's going to take years and um, you know a whole bunch more infrastructure investment. Um, so that's a that's a that would be a, a nice to have at this point. Again, I can't, I can't imagine doing it, but yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I'll see where we are in five years. Yeah, you're never going to never going to say never. It, but it also yeah. seems to me um, almost unnecessary. Like you're not trying to uh, either reinvent the wheel or become an island. You're you're trying to use multiple resources and bring in multiple people. So if someone else wants to become the local maltster, it sounds more interesting in the in the idea that you have for this community. Oh yeah, yeah. That that would be absolutely incredible if somebody wanted to start a, a small malting company yeah, in, yeah. in southeast uh, corner of Connecticut. My my email is jc at trillionbrewing dot com. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're gonna get some crazy people emailing you for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let me do this. Uh, let's take a, a quick break uh, because, for one, I want to get a beer, in, your beer, in my glass, um, and then we've just got a lot more to talk about. So, um, cool. let's do that. Uh, you're listening to JC from Trillium on the Brewing Network, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. We are still hanging out with JC from Trillium, and I just got some beer in my glass, which I'm excited about. Um, kind of my fault. I didn't get a whole a whole a shipment. I, we we kind of rescheduled this show, and we had some beer week stuff going on. So um, I'm happy to just have at least one. Uh, and what I've got is your Congress Street IPA. Um, and you name you have a whole series of beers that you name after uh, streets in Boston, right? Yeah, they're actually um, immediately in the Fort Point neighborhood where, okay. um, yeah, where our original brewery was, which was on, right on Congress Street. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that total shithole that we started started in, it was, a, <laughs> it was absolutely brutal. The lowest hanging pipe in that space was eight and a half feet. So it was like, it was an absolute monster to, to operate out of there. And God bless our team. And we had a we had one pit drain uh, in the, in the middle of our cellar. Um, and of course the floor effectively ran away from that. So everything, if you got anything on the floor, is going to run away oh, no. from the pit drain. So we just, had, we had to become like squeegeeing ninjas. Right. Um, Constant. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, our, our, uh, our, uh, our big restaurant in Boston is still in the, in the four point historic, uh, neighborhood. It's in this awesome, um, brick and beam building. We actually removed the floor on the first floor to be able to bring it down to grade. Cause there were, you know, those were all operating industrial buildings right. um, from 150 years ago. So we had to, uh, you know, to make it more hospitality friendly, we removed the old, the old floor. We actually kept the reclaimed beams and those are now um, uh, tables in our Canton location. These giant, you know, giant wooded beams are pretty cool. Yeah. See, that's wild, the thing. man. We, we cut we cut those beams with uh, chainsaws because they're so massive. Okay. And, you know, they're probably, you know, 150-year-old beams in the center of them were still like wet sap. It was oh, wild. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. See, and that's the thing that not all, but most of us West Coasters don't either have to deal with or have experienced, you know, 150-year-old, 200-year-old buildings. When I, when I lived in Connecticut for a little while, I lived in a 200-year-old house. It's very different than the, than, than the West Coast. We have to deal, of course, with the earthquake retrofitting. That's Those are our big projects. You know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so this beer, and uh, just like this beer, which is a, a hazy IPA, a New England IPA, um, you you very quickly became known for for this style, right? This was th- this style of beer was a, a real part of your popularity. Uh, yeah, again, it wasn't necessarily by design. We we mm. had some examples. Uh, you may have heard of them, folks like the Alchemist and yep, yep. and Hill Farmstead that were um, they were getting very different expressions of hot poured beers than 
we uh, had otherwise experienced till till then, you know, sort of in the in the early two thousand teens or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we're trying those beers and just like, wow, it's just so expressive and there's something different about it. And yeah, they're a little bit hazier than we just you know kind of thought that that was just because they were putting more into it or or something of the varieties or some something else was happening. Um, and it was sort of. Um, you know, it's sort of, you know, Congress Sheet was the, the first IPA that we made because I was holding out to be able to get some Galaxy um, because the experience that I had with a, a few Hill Farmstead Galaxy Ford beers just, at, you know, blew me away. We um, we knew that in order to kind of be memorable for our hot Ford beer, uh, Fort Point um, was going to be our Citra Ford beer. Mm-hmm. And we we're starting that. um Starting that as our pale ale at six point six percent, we got a lot of got a lot of shit for that. But it was sort of like a an intentional stake in the ground that we start. You know, we're going to start our hoppy beer program at six point six percent with this incredibly explosively aroma Citra Ford beer, mm-hmm. and then Galaxy will would be our IPA, and that would be sort of our um, you know how are we going to be uh, recognized for those for those kinds of beers? We didn't know that the yeast that we we're using was a biotransformative yeast and kind of the more we would nudge up the temperature. Cause so like one of the, one of the rules um, from, you know, from then was to actually get rid of the yeast in your beer um, or at least drop out some of it when you dry hop, because um, the yeast would actually drag out hop aroma. Mm. So we used to, uh, when we first started, we were dropping our beer post primary <laughs> ferment after VDK, VDK rest to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And then we're like, nah, it's not quite the same as it was before. And I was doing less temperature control and we weren't, you know, dropping, it's just not as expressive. So we kept nudging the temperature up Hmm. and and then just eventually just leaving it at fermentation temperatures when we were dry hopping. And the first batch, the first production batch um, of Congress Street that we made, I was just gnashing my teeth about whether or not we were going to be able to actually release that beer because it looked so completely crazy yeah it looked like it was still fermenting it was not dropping bright it had been cold for a week and you know but it tasted good it tasted and smelled unbelievable so you know that's priorities number one and two and then how it looked was going to have to be you know let's just see <laughs> you <laughs> how know? people react let's see yeah. how people how people are going to react yeah. and wouldn't you know it um our customers didn't care how it looked they just loved the way it smelled and tasted lots of other folks in the brewing industry were very upset yeah. with how it looked yeah um but we kind of had to go with our gut on it and just say we don't really know what's happening but it is unbelievable um and, you know you know fast forward a few years and we now know quite a bit more about it um but it was sort of just starting with the rules and then kind of going outside of it a little bit yeah and just kind of continuing to explore and control for one thing and just you know the idea of continuous process improvement is kind of what led us to that plus you know these new world hop varieties that were just so incredibly expressive uh in combination with the right yeast 
It's kind of amazing that those two, you know, the the hop varieties, like you said, really were, and, and they still are, just expanding and becoming more and more uh, expressive. At the same time, this style comes out where we discover yeast can help with that. It, it's kind of amazing that that happened together. Uh, although I feel like yeah. that's the history of beer. Like beer's just been this random, uh, you know, conglomerations of this wonderful product since the beginning, right? Fermentation yeah, and itself. It's, it's always going to be a progression as well. You know, mm. of course... There's moments frozen in time in certain beer styles, and they were they were um, an expression of time and place and knowledge and, and the equipment and in um, the pre- personal preferences of the community in that time. And it's awesome that we have those things to look back at as like these little time capsules. And you know, someday in the future, mm. New England or Hazy IPA is going to be. You know, that, that was from the early 2000s. That's so that's so old fashioned. You know, that's going to be that'll certainly happen, you know, right. probably within our lifetimes, really. I think so. you're, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> now. So before this, had you even uh, commercially brewed a, a clear or West Coast IPA? We made um, we made a few uh, again, at, the, at you know, 10 years ago, mm. um, Belgian IPAs were super popular and like a really cool, interesting new expression of, of IPAs. So we had a series of beers called Dry Stack. Um, it's it, Dry Stack is like a, a way of building walls in New England. We're basically just like stacking okay. <laughs> <laughs> racial yeah. deposited stones on top of each other to uh, to get them out of your fields. Okay. Um, from your farming fields, and uh, you know, put a, a property border around your. I see. Uh, around your property, there's actually more. Um, there's actually more stone in New England dry stack uh, walls than there are uh, stones used in the in the pyramids of Egypt. That's it's just amazing. like an unbelievable amount of stone was moved by hand um, by uh, by folks. Uh, I, separately, totally different show. We can talk about sheep mania that, uh, oh that, my gosh. that swept across New England. Uh, that's a totally different show, though. It is, um, but you, you just gave me an idea. I've been trying to think of a new podcast, and I need to do one with like brewers like weird knowledge that they have okay, about yeah, things yeah. where that's the perfect topic. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Merino, Merino sheep came in from, uh, from, they were smuggled into, I think Vermont from, uh, well, we'll save it for the show. Yeah. Yeah. Save it for my new podcast. <laughs> You'll be my first guest. <laughs> uh, love it. Um, so, okay. So, what about the 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 techniques uh, for for this beer? Can we talk a little bit about that? For one, it's it is one of the best, if not the best, hazy beers I, I've ever had. New England style examples I've ever had. And I want to tell—I don't know if I said it on air. I told you off air. I also got this beer back in February, so my bad. Should have tapped it then, but I really wanted to hold on to it. It's completely held up. Um, even keeping haze is sometimes still a challenge for folks. You guys, when I say it, you you brewers, most of you have gotten so good at it lately. Uh, after years of this, but I don't know. Can you give us a few tips and tricks about managing mm-hmm. this, the amount of hops that have to go in, um, the, the, the amount of haze that you want to stay in suspension, you know, just anything for the brewers out there. Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that we, you know, from, from our original dry hopping rates to where we are today, <laughs> it's, you know, for a beer like Congress Street, we're, we're close to, we're close to uh, we're a little over two times what we started out as. So our original version, this is what you're drinking right now, is kind of our original version of double dry hop Congress Street. You okay. Know? So like the the perception and the desire and the ability for for uh, achieving the level of intensity um, in aroma and flavor 
and kind of like that palette shift has occurred over over these 10 years so that um yeah there's there was room enough in the beer to kind of uh, take that level of, of dry hop. So it's kind of an incredible thing, but we started, um, at a certain level and, you know, that was kind of, uh, mind blowing at that time and things have shifted a ton since. So, um, one thing that we kind of quickly re- recognize and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, in my clinical trial management background, you, you design a, a study, you collect the data, you have a hypothesis of what's going to happen, and you analyze the information. And, you know, we kind of take that same approach, not only in designing beers, um, but in kind of managing the business as well. So, um, you know, how, do, how does a quote-unquote normal brewery operate? And then how are we currently operating? Boy, we have some room within the cost of goods um, in time and tank and kind of all those other things that a distribution brewery does not have. So, um, we, you know, we were able to let our beers condition, uh, our, our IPAs condition on a logger timeline. You know, mm. we, we give, we're giving them three and four weeks. Wow. Um, we were able to spend way more on cost of goods and we weren't as encumbered to conduct experiments like adding kind of crazy amounts of hops and, and taking a very low yield because we're selling our, you know, our customers were able to support us in the way that they did. Sure. So, um, we were able to kind of push on the edges of those things and, you know, put more hops in. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, that's from a from a cost perspective, too, not 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 just for you, but us us consumers had to participate in that with you. Uh, and that's still happening, by the way. I work in my tap room all the time on the retail side. And I'm not going to lie, I sometimes still have a little sticker shock. Uh, luckily for me, I also speak to brewers all the time. So I sort of have this understanding of what's happening. But that's a leap, I, I think, for you guys to to have taken. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the cost of hops from, th- from then till now have doubled, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and things are kind of easing off on that as, um, as things kind of settle out as they always do in the, in the beer and, and hop industry. Um, yeah. So that was, you know, that was one of the things that we started to really, um, uh, evolve on. You know, I think again, as a normal brewery, um, most folks are very reticent to change their recipes or change their approach. Mm. Or, you know, once you set, you've found something that you really love and your customers really love, a lot of people kind of write it in stone and say, that's what it is. And that's what it's going to be because changing it is antithetical to how you make consumer products. You know, they want it to be consistent. Um, and yes, that's true to a degree and making giant shifts, um, is probably not a great idea from, Mm. you know, batch to batch. Um, but if it didn't feel right to, to, to not try to consistently try to improve things. Okay. So, yeah. So that's why you're basically drinking 2014 double dry up Congress street. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we had this come up on the shows recently a couple times. Does double dry hop to you mean twice the amount of hops or you dry hop it at two different times? So uh, 2014, JC would have said it is both those things. So okay, yeah. I got I got the I got the idea from going to um, this. This is awesome. uh beer bar, Belgian, uh, Belgian leaning beer bar in Brookline called the public house and, um, uh, incredible place been around, I think 16 or 17 years now. Okay. Um, they used to, they used to have, uh, an event where they do a fundraiser for, um, uh, for MS 
And it was called the Hophead Throwdown. And they would, he would, you know, the the proprietor would bring in the hoppiest beer from around the country, and double dry hop ruination would be brought in from Stone. Hmm. And you know, it was like that is easily the hoppiest beer I've ever had. And it could just, you know, you, those sensory memory memories really stick with you. Yeah. So uh, we one day. Trillium is invited to the Hophead Throwdown. I'm like, I got to do a double dry hop version of Fort Point. And at that point, it was, um, you know, it was the idea of like, you want really good contact time. So, you know, drop out the, the first dry hopping, you know, drop it out of the cone, dry hop it again, but in, with a second full charge. And that was our, our approach then. Okay. And then um, over time, you're like, you know, that's another touch. That's another, you know, another set of work. That's uh, that's another potential for uh, adding oxygen into the tank. And that's not, never a good thing for beer. Um, and it also sets up, um, you know, a protracted time in the cellar. So mm. we tried adding that full double charge in a single charge um, and, it was as good, if not better. Okay, uh, you know, it gave us more time to let that beer condition without more agitation and kind of kicking things up again. And it turned, you know, turned out great. So now, uh, and for quite a while now, it's it's a uh, it's twice the charge, but only a, a single time. I see. Okay, and are we yep. talking about pellets as a format in all of this? Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. To work with the uh, whole, whole cone is it's just impossible. Only viable for folks who really want to <laughs> use whole cone and have designed their breweries around that. It's um, yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's it would be a massive challenge for us to kind of retrofit things, and we'd have to do the you know the Sierra Nevada torpedo approach and all all those kinds of crazy things. Okay. So, well, what is your approach, like your your technical approach to using these massive hop? charges and hop loads in beer do you have special equipment or techniques for that now yeah we we use um we use the amco uh manufactured uh uh i think they call it it's the dry hopnik it's a it's a uh it's a vessel that you can load on the ground and it's a pressurized uh purge vessel and you you get a a beer loop going from the bottom of the cone you throw it to the top of the tank and through induction, the, 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 the pellets will kind of go into that beer loop and you, you'll get full dispersion of all of the hops throughout the entire beer column. Wow. And our team, our, our team gets to do the dry hop with their feet firmly planted on the ground. So, nice, you yeah. know, s- safety is always uh, front of mind. It's, it's within our, um, you know, it's within our core values and we talk about it and consider it all the time. We have a full-time um, uh, safety director, uh, in the program and constantly doing audits. And, you know, it's an important, uh, thing for us and any opportunity that we have to both improve and, you know, make it an infrastructure improve, uh, investment to both, uh, improve the beer and increase safety is like, it's like a no brainer for us. So, um, but we found, um, that we're able to get way bigger impact and using that device, um, um, than if we were to just top hop, you know, just the kind of the classic open up the top of the tank, mm-hmm. dump in the dump in the dump in the hops, maybe agitate it from the bottom of the tank once in a while using CO two. Um, yeah, so uh, we could have backed off on the amount of hops that we use, but we're, we're very excited to get more, even uh, more. more intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got more, and you know, particularly at the time, people were just interested in more. So we just kind of rolled rolled with it. One um, one interesting side effect of that that we were not expecting was actually better yields. So when we were throwing up the enti- you know taking the entire volume of that tank and kind of uh, agitating it out, you were getting better contact and bioconversion with the yeast as well. We thought hmm. um, 
but you know the the yeast and the tube uh, typically will fall into the bottom of the, of the cone and will stick to the sidewalls and then kind of you know have this kind of like you know you'd have this shape in the bottom where it'd be more difficult to set your racking arm kind of on the lower position. But when you kind of toss that all up into the beer column, mm-hmm. we found that it would actually settle farther down because it wasn't sticking to the sidewalls as much because the yeast was mixed very well with the hops. Interesting. Um, so we were able to drop our, uh, our racking cane lower and we got better yields from that. So that was something we did pretty early on, probably 2015. Um, and more recently, we um, we invested in a device called a centrifuge decanter. Hmm. So it's like, you know, it's like a super powered version of a, a typical centrifuge. Centrifuge is a device that kind of spins beer and, and kind of exerts a centrifugal force, kind of like a gravity kind of thing where, you yeah. know, the solids would be kind of pulled to the side and then eventually ejected. And it was a way for us to um, to remove the hop mass from from the beer and kind of increase both quality and yields that way mm-hmm. um, and we heard about this device uh, from a company a German company called Flotweg and um, it's kind of uh, including that centrifugal force but also kind of adding a corkscrew mechanism to it that would kind of um, really improve the efficiency and be more gentle on, on the beer than uh, a typical centrifuge um, and the yields were even better than really? a centrifuge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was better at removing yeast and all, kind of all the above. And it was a continuous process um, instead of the bowl needing to clear on a centrifuge. So that um, allowed us to push our hop loads, our dry hop loads even even farther. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, at, you know, we, we make we make these totally ins- insanely dry hop beers, you know, well over 10 pounds, 11 pounds per barrel, which I talked to some brewer and they're just like, what the hell are you doing? That's just that's just, that's just dump. You yeah, know? they feel the like you're reason, wasting you know, money. The only way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the only uh, the only reason to to do that is if you're not just you know you, you're literally wasting hops. You, there's no additional impact. It's just uh, you know something to put on your Instagram page. It's like we don't do anything like that. We, yeah. If we're doing it, there's a reason for it. Um, we were we were of course accused of doing that, but that's not what we we're doing. We actually were able to get that much more character out of the dry hop um because we have we had those approaches and um again our customers were supporting us uh so much that we could invest that much more in the cost of goods and we were getting the yields that we needed to from um from these uh uh, at the time novel seller approaches as well so did this new centrifuge with the corkscrew action as well completely replace your old one or do you use both of these either in tandem or in different uh, beers or yeah it's a two-step process for us we do you know it's probably like 90 plus percent of it is done with the uh the flaw wagon that's really just for our most heavily dry hop beers i see uh, and then we do the last little bit with uh with the regular centrifuge okay. uh, that's a much quicker pass okay and here's something i never really and people have explained it to me but i still never really grasp it entirely if you were to run your haziest, your New Englandiest beer through a centrifuge long enough, would it turn clear? Would it ever turn clear, um, or is that a different thing that's happening that can't be cleared? Yeah, so like we actually remove quite a lot of yeast from from our beer, sure, and the haze that's in there is not uh, is extraordinarily stable. I, I kind of it's it's probably not an apt uh, descriptor, but it's sort of like a hop emulsion, right? So if you're making, I don't know, you're making an emulsion in the kitchen, yeah. um, 
and you make it properly, it just stays in suspension. It doesn't break. And okay. that's kind of, you know, akin to what's happening here. It's not, it's not like, um, it's not starch that's eventually going to settle out. It's not yeast that's going to settle out. It's these emulsified aromas and flavors that just stays up in suspension. You know, I've, we have some beers in our, in our quality archive that's, you know, been in there for three, four years mm. and still has a very prominent haze to it. Amazing. Um, yeah. Yep. Okay. And then um, we could talk hops uh, all day, and and we probably will on another show. But I have to ask you, what about lagers? And and I'm asking you that for a couple reasons. Uh, being originally from the East Coast and still having family there, East Coast is a, is a lager place. So it always has been uh, in terms of like kind of old school beer people, right? Um, but also craft brewers are getting so damn good at it that uh, you must be diving into or, or maybe you have the whole time into lagering as well. Yeah, so, um, you know, for the first, I don't know, four four plus years, I mean, it was it was breakneck. Don't let the, you know, don't run out of beer kind of right. thing. And yeah. Um, uh, hops was really driving, driving the bus until we eventually could kind of catch up to things. Um, loggers was always, you know, something that I personally loved for years and years and years. And, you know, our, our desire to have that full range um, of beer styles represented in our tap rooms um, to be as welcoming to as many people as possible in, you know, logger checked all of those boxes, not just for me personally, but for what we wanted to achieve and hmm. uh, we're going to offer our guests. Um, but we just couldn't do it. You know, we were just like, we would, we would run out of beer if we tried to make loggers. And that, again, from that early experience that felt antithetical to, to what we, so we just had to be patient and wait until we could, you know, build the infrastructure and have enough cellar capacity and build the team. Um, uh, we actually put in uh, some extensions on our mezzanine to be able to, instead of a lagering cellar that was you know below ground, we actually had a lagering mezzanine. We were able to crane, you know, kind of crane in these thirty barrel, eight thirty barrel lagering tanks, and they're still there. Nice. Um, so that's where most of our our lager production uh, uh, started and still is. And are they um, hor- horizontal tanks? So I'm trying to get a picture yeah, yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah so yeah, horizontal lagering tanks. Horizontal yeah. tanks, yeah. and we, you know. Uh, it's kind of mismatched with our, 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 our brew house and the rest of our cellar. So most of our batches end up going into two or three horizontal tanks. Um, but it's just, you know, that's, that's the limitation of one of our spaces, uh, our space there. So with our new, with the new build and the new brewery, we're going to be kind of a one-to-one, um, with our horizontal tanks for our locker program, but we've been doing that, um, since late 2017 or so. So we've, we've been making quite a lot of lager, okay. I guess, quietly yeah. for, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's in the, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's in the several thousands of barrels uh, of our production is, is in lagers. Yeah. Okay. And so do you see that as, as a big part of, of craft beers future of, of your future lagers or uh, are hops always going to remain the, the champion? It, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, the more I think I know about what's going to happen in, in the craft <laughs> beer world, the less I I'm confident to like, to be able to predict things. Sure. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The demand for, for lager in our, in our, particularly in our tap rooms continues to go up and it's, it's super heartening. It's, it feels like the most durable, um, the dur- most durable thing. Um, yeah. It, 
they tend to be much lower alcohol. They tend to appeal to a much broader, um, uh, broader number of people from people who are kind of not wanting or just kind of nervous about dipping their toe into, into beer Mm -hmm. uh, or kind of, you know, more local beer and less macro beer. Um, And it kind of goes full circle to people who've been around beer for decades. They're almost always reaching for lagers. So yeah. um, Yeah. Appealing and kind of uh, feeling like um, uh, that customer is recognized and appreciated. It's, it's, we're super thankful to be able to offer, what sure. we do. Yeah, plus like you said kind of the 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 trend in uh low calorie or just thinking about your health in general then you know the there there will there are and and will always be us beer geeks who want to try everything and the biggest thing you have and the smallest thing you have and everything in between. But you know from new and younger drinkers it seems to me that there's less and less that want the biggest beer you make and more and more that want something a little healthier if that's probably not even the right word to use, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody's an individual, right? So, you know, there's, there's folks in all aspects and all spectrums of what mm-hmm. they prefer and appreciate. Um, I, I, hopefully this isn't taken in a, in a derisive way to craft beers because I certainly <laughs> consider myself one, Yeah, same. but um, I think more and more um, we, we are appealing to normal people. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, which I, 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 I wear as like a badge of honor because the, um, th- those are folks who live in our community and they're coming to see us not because it's the most exciting thing and that's happening in craft beer. It's just like they love the experience. They feel comfortable bringing their, their friends and family and, and having, um, having a great time and drinking our beer not because it's highly, highly rated or whatever. It's just because it's, that's their, that's their local brewery. Um, and we're able to, to, to fill up the place with, yeah, craft beer nerds, but man, a heck of a lot of normal people too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you have a spot now, like right near the ballpark in Boston? Yeah. Yeah. It's in the, it's in the Fenway neighborhood near, uh, near Fenway park. I'm so jealous right now. Uh, so I haven't been to Fenway in years. You weren't. You weren't there. You were. You were a chemist then. <laughs> I was in, in the Fenway. No, I was never a chemist. I can never. I can never bring myself to go to grad school or get a PhD or okay. whatever. Just okay. yeah. <laughs> well, what's the most popular beer that sells on game days near Fenway? Do you know or style? Is it a style or whatever? Yeah, I, I would guess it's. Um, it's it's definitely whatever we've got pouring for IPA. Like I said, we don't really have Still the flagship IPA. that's kind of on and available all the time, but we'll probably get to that soon. Where we'll have, we'll have uh, Fort Point and Congress Street on and kind of available. I would I would venture to guess that that Congress Street would be the most popular beer that would be pouring there. Okay, but man, right behind it are the loggers for sure. That's and that's what I was thinking is that there you might just inch over the IPAs. Maybe if if it was going to be anywhere, it'd be near the ballpark. So yeah. Uh, yep. are, are you a baseball fan at all? I grew up watching the Sox, yeah. uh, you know, the Sox in two in the morning when I was a kid. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't stay up late enough to watch the games, so I'd watch them on uh, on Nesson in the morning, for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. old man's a Red Sox fan. Uh, I'm a Giants fan because I grew up out here. But, um, That's okay. That's yeah, okay. You, you love it, but uh, uh, but I did get I, I did get to go to Fenway, and uh, anyway, you guys got a good team this year. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, it's gonna be kind of fun to watch. Now you guys are all right. You're all right. You lost <laughs> you lost a couple people, but you're gonna be. I think you're gonna be okay. Uh, yeah, 
you know. Maybe I'll watch some LA games this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, and then last on the beer side, certainly not least, uh, of course, and you've been on uh, our um, our show, The Sour Hour, a couple of times, uh, yeah. but you guys have a nice uh, mixed fermentation program as well, and it sounds like that's something you've always uh, had, uh, too, since the beginning, maybe bigger now, but uh, you were always inter- interested in mixed fermentation. Yeah, we we were making uh, mixed firm beers from day one with that uh, that that mixed microbe culture that that was cultured off the um, uh, grape skins from the vineyard where Esther and I were married. Mm-hmm. And out of all the ones I, I did, including the kind of the walking around with a with an open vial of wort, um, the 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 culture from the Chardonnay grapes was the one that we we eventually we eventually chose and then banked. We had a scare recently where. Um, the the East Lab where we had our our mixed culture banked went up and closed on us and didn't tell us that they were closing and oh no you know, we, we we don't have a locally stored minus eighty freezer where we, where we have our culture stored so um, thankfully we, were, we we did have something um, that was in good enough a condition for us to isolate a few cells to propagate up to send to another. Uh, another lab to bank wow. kind of a fresh culture. So that's thankfully back. Um, but yeah, it's sort of the mixed microbe thing it kind of goes hand in hand with the idea of being a, a New England farmhouse brewery. So mm-hmm. making those for, for quite a while. And then one day, hopefully being able to have a, a spontaneous program, sort of the fullest expression of, uh, of both terroir, both, uh, you know, from the from the small grain perspective, and the and the microbes in the air was um, a dream of ours, and we're going, we're in our sixth spontaneous season now. So that's um, did you that's do it out at the farm? Obviously, yeah. No, oh. um, like we don't have we don't have brewing in- infrastructure at the farm, so we do it at uh, at our Canton location. Okay, um, and I only felt comfortable doing so after having visited Cantillon. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, they're in the Seine Valley. They are very, very, very much in the city. Oh, heck um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So kind of visiting there and kind of looking around saying, hey, where are all the pastoral fields and orchards and all that stuff? Yeah. If, <laughs> and, if he uh, could do it, you could do it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So um, Canton isn't nearly as industrial and city center as uh, uh, as that area uh, yeah. is for, for Cantillon. So we felt good about that. and. You know, every still today we just we we brewed a uh, spontaneous batch seven or eight days ago, and every single time you hold your breath and you wait for mm. you wait for it to take off and you're smell you're smelling the Krausen that's coming out is like is this going to be okay? Does it go and, into um, you have a cool ship there? Or yeah, we have yeah. we actually have quite a large cool ship. It is fifty okay. barrels, and we decided to back off to doing thirty five barrel batches, um, just to kind of get the right batch size to get enough blends and so on and so forth. So. Um, yeah, still quite a large spontaneous batch. Uh, and we go into, uh, used wine puncheons that we, um, we, we, we find, um, um, in order to kind of Im- improve both the quality and, and, uh, and reduce the misses. We, we do steam those barrels prior to, uh, to, to knocking out into them. Okay. So, and we use quite a heavy, uh, quite a heavy, hop load in them as well. So I didn't appreciate to the degree that aged hops um, had an impact on the flavor and aroma 
in the in the final beer four plus years later because um, it doesn't say that in the books when you read all, all the homebrewing books or all the you know the brewers publication books on on spontaneous beer they kind of talk about how they're they're this kind of uh, very important antiseptic yeah uh, it helps you to kind of um, uh, deselect the spoilage uh, organisms and select for the best uh, aroma and flavor uh, yeast and bacteria but man after trying a bunch of different spontaneous beers uh, from from friends and brewing our own now, man, the impact of, of age hops is absolutely massive. Interesting. Uh, on the finished beer. Yeah. Are, are, are you aging your own? Um, <laughs> this was a, a point in time, which is very different than today. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where the demand for aged hops was through the roof. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think the folks at Wicked Weed had picked over all the hop suppliers. Okay. And, yeah. Um, there was, there were like, there were no aged hops to be had at any price. <laughs> so I, um, I don't know who I asked, but eventually somebody connected me with, uh, um, uh, with the folks at Charles Farum. Okay. Um, and they they knew of a uh, of a Slovenian hop farm that happened to have eight year old bales kind of buried in the back of their warehouse, and they just never, you know, never bothered to get rid of them. So they agreed to uh, bring them in from Slovenia. Wow. And after their normal pelletizing run and their season was over, they actually, because shipping, you know, big bales of aged hops is going to be super expensive. Yeah. They um, they pelletized them for us because they didn't want to have to clean their their pelletizing equipment twice. <laughs> right. Put them into mylars, put them in the boxes, and shipped, them, shipped pallets over to us. So now we've got these kind of frozen in time. Yeah. Um, Slovenian aged hops. That's amazing. Uh, also, way too many of them now, given the demand for spontaneous beer. So my email is jc at trilliumbrewing.com mm-hmm. if you're in the market for some aged hops. <laughs> okay, I bet you get some emails. I'm su- I'm surprised aged hops like that could even be pelletized. I would think they're so dry that it wouldn't even form. That's a, Yeah, I mean, the, the, the um, you know, the, the fats and oils are still present there, okay. you know, it, you know, uh, moisture is just a function of kind of what's what's present in the environment. They kind of all equalize to the humidity that's in the air. So, um, you know, when they put them through the dye and, you know, it kind of forms that pellet just like a, a fresher hop would be, probably okay. lower overall moisture uh, it would be from kind of freshly kiln hops. But, yeah, no problem at all. So when you pop open one of these Mylar bags – can you describe, I mean, just cheese and like, what am I, what I can't imagine. Yeah. Ours aren't, um, uh, maybe because they're they're they were so, uh, low alpha and they were just kind of low oil hops to begin with. Um, ours don't have that kind of intense cheesiness that you would otherwise find, you know, and their age, you know, they were in, they were in burlaps in a, in a where un you know, an unconditioned warehouse for eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a lot of that, if, if it did get cheesy at some point, probably dissipated. So, uh, they're very, um, kind of like best way to describe me, you know, if, if you're from new England, it's sort of like, um, a, uh, a field of wild grass, at the end of the summer after a long drought. So it's very hay-like, okay. but with more um, more depth and more earth and um, and still has like a floral element to it, okay. uh, which is really, really cool. Um, 
but not sort of that gamey, cheesy thing that you can kind of sometimes experience in a shop. So yeah, when we first toss them into the, into the boil for a, a spontaneous, uh, spontaneous beer, um, you know, in the books, it says you want to boil all that bad stuff off. So mm. it doesn't end up in your finished beer. And that's not what happens. We actually just started putting, um, putting some of the pellets into the cool ship at the time of knockout. So it spends a little bit more time. It can actually pick up a little bit more okay. of that hot character. So nice. yeah, we'll see how that goes in a few years. In a few years. Do you, is yeah. there a name for your series of, of uh, mixed fermentation beer? Yeah, it, it's called habitat. Okay. Um, um, it, uh, on the label, it depicts sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a shot, uh, an image, um, of our farm in kind of one aspect we kind of we took a we took a drone up and then we took sort of a panoramic um a panoramic uh photo up there and um the the idea is we're going to do that every few years and we, we're going to kind of in the subsequent years kind of show the additional um the additional image from the farm and then when it's time in maybe four or five years to go back to that original perspective nice the farm will have grown and changed in that uh in that time but of course all the you know the perimeter and the and the dry stack stone walls and the and largely the kind of the core infrastructure of the buildings um will still be in place but you'll you'll be able to see the evolution of the farm over time um slowly happening uh as our habitat beers are released and we tend to do that right around our anniversary which is uh next week i want you to find like the tallest whatever on your property pole thing and just i want a camera there that whole time with this this would be an amazing time lapse try to it would have to shutter like every seven days or every month or something for the next five years would be incredible that's a super cool idea uh i'll ask my it dude about <laughs> ask that. your it dude they're so cheap right it could be almost any camera and you just want it to snap every literally could be every month i don't know what but uh i love this idea of of going with habitat that you're already doing uh, yeah and showing that change it'd be incredible yeah excellent all right let's do this i got to get us to one more break um okay and then uh, when we come back uh, uh, we're gonna finish with some get to know jc questions can we do that Absolutely. All right. Hang in there. If you want to learn more about Trillium, go to trilliumbrewing.com. You can learn about the farm and all the things we're talking about. It's a great website, super informative. Uh, You can learn about all their locations and the beers that they have. Um, So go to trilliumbrewing.com. We'll be right back on the Brewing Network. Welcome back to the session. We are still hanging out with JC from Trillium. Go to trilliumbrewing.com to learn more about all the things that we're talking about and how you can go see them out there. Um, I'm kind of wishing, I'm super stoked that uh, the Craft Brewers Conference is in um, Nashville because uh, I love that town, but I'm really, I need an excuse to go back to the East Coast. I was kind of wishing it was back there. In fact, the last time I went to Fenway, as we were talking about earlier, was when the Craft Brewers Conference was in Boston. So that was really a long time ago. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get to know JC with some random questions. Uh, and real quick, don't forget about our wonderful sponsors like the 21st Amendment. Watermelon wheat is back. It's in season. It's a delicious beer. Uh, so check it out. Get your cans of watermelon wheat now from 21st Amendment. Also, the Beersmith Brewing Software is still the best brewing software on the market. You get a free 21-day trial. So go check it out at uh, beersmith.com. Okay, here we go. I'm going to start with some beery stuff and then do a bunch of other ones in the middle. But what's your favorite Trillium beer right now? 
So it doesn't have to be all time. Just what are you drinking now when you grab a trillion? Dear Lord. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's um, it, it's easily one of the most difficult questions you'll ever ask a brewer. And I've noticed a lot of brewers will answer answer in the way that their marketing team wants them to answer. Okay. Like, yeah, know, yeah. Whatever beer is the one you want to sell the most of, you know? <laughs> um See, I always, while you're thinking about it, I always, I can never answer the favorite of all time, but I never, I never have trouble with the right now one. Cause I do, I, and, but I'm also like a creature of habit. So I'll find one and I'll stick with that for a month or two, you know, yeah, just whatever it is. I'm going to be boring and say Pilsner. Your pills. Okay. That's, that's yeah. all right. All right. Yep. yep. What's your um, super traditional, you know, German uh, German style yeast and uh, Czech sauce um, hopping and, you know, really firm on the bitterness. And man, it's good. Is it just called Trillium Pilsner? Yeah. Yep. Nice. What's your favorite non-Trillium beer right now? Anything? Mm. Do you have a go-to beer? Mm. Well, I just, I just visited the folks um, at Tilted Barn mm-hmm. in, in Rhode Island and tried a whole bunch of their beers my memory is total shit, so I'm not going to be able to tell you what the names were. I mean, whenever like you, you're with a brewer, yeah. they just keep putting beers in front of you and just kind of trying their stuff. And like, you know, they sent sent me home with a case and a, a couple bottles, and nice. their stuff is is really cool. And, and again, it's like that you just appreciate it so much because it's an awesome expression of, of of who they are as people and and the experience they're trying to create for um uh, for their guests. So yeah, to go check those guys out there in, uh, Exeter, Rhode Island. Okay. Excellent. All right. What's the, what would I think or people think is the weirdest food combination that you enjoy? You know, do you put like pickles together with chocolate or something? I don't know. Yeah, what. I don't like, I actually, I, I, I really, really appreciate like the classic food combinations or the preparations uh, for what they are. I, I would, um, you know, as any busy dad with a couple kids who are hungry, you know, an hour before you got home, mm. um, I figured out a, a, a single pot meal that, you know, you, you kind of have to keep yourself entertained as a dad as well. So <laughs> it was like, you know, it was, uh, barley with peas, uh, a little bit of onion, I don't know, a bunch of other random stuff. Yeah. And then I put, then I put like a little bit of cheddar cheese in it. And then, nice. you know, you push the bowl in front of your kids and say, hope you enjoy. And you're like, dad, <laughs> what is this? And, I, and like I said, you got to keep yourself entertained. And I just say, eh, it's gruel, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So now, of course, they add, say, dad, can you make us gruel for dinner? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you made it too cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But they don't know. They, they think that's like a real dish and like, that's actually what it's called. And it's, it's, it, I laugh every time they ask me for, to make gruel for dinner. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Cause it's like, you know, this brown beige, you know, slop. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, but it's got cheddar cheese on it. So that's right. It right. <laughs> uh, all right. Now we, we touched on this earlier, so I don't want you to think too much about it. If you were to get a tattoo today, what would it be? Don't think about the future, just today. Yeah, uh, it would probably be the uh, the Trillium uh, original Trillium label, um, which my buddy Kevin Simo drew, who's now our you know he's been our designer forever. He was a, uh, he was a groomsman in, in my in my wedding party as well. Nice. So he did this incredible illustration 
um, of barley. Uh, that was our, you know, one of our original uh, beers. Cool. And it's super uh, simple and elegant and feels timeless enough to get as a tattoo as a brewer. Nice. All right. I like it. See, you found a timeless one. So just saying. <laughs> um, what is a habit, good or bad, that you picked up from your parents? Oh, um, it's it's probably starting a project um, with no real appreciation for the impact on others around me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So my parents would always be working on the house to try to make make it better. You know, it, they didn't have much money, and they had four kids, and they got a house with one bedroom, and they tried to make it work. And they were constantly, you know, trying to trying to make the house better. And eventually, turned it into uh, a four bedroom home with, you wow. know, with a with a, a two a two car garage. And they did a hell of a lot, hell of a lot of work themselves. But there was probably a good two month period where everything in the freezer tasted like paint. <laughs> you know, they were like yeah. painting all the time. Oh, and, gosh. you know, back when you know we were kids, the uh, you know the volatile organic compounds are pretty heavy and they found their way into the ice cubes <laughs> oh my gosh yeah uh all right so biting off a little more than you could chew sometimes too uh yeah what's the most irrational superstition that you have you got any oh, superstitions? I'm not a superstition guy i'm not like uh i've never even bought a lottery ticket so, so you don't have one thing that you're like oh don't do that that's bad luck um, no i don't i don't okay. believe in that stuff at all it's sort of like Mm, yeah. I don't think there's like some, uh, you know, something kind of pulling you or pushing you in a certain direction. It's, it's kind of like, you know, whatever, your, whatever your makeup is, it's, it's not, it's not like a fate sort of thing for me. Okay. Yeah. So it's a good answer. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's stuff that you can do to like, uh, upset people, but it's not like a luck thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair. All right. Aside from brewing, um, what is a talent that you would like to possess if you could? Something you don't, a talent you don't have. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely, as a kid, I definitely wish I could uh, be a musician or sing. That's, that's probably extre- extremely common. Um, you know, uh, love, love Nirvana and Pro Jam and, yeah. you know, love all that Seattle stuff. And, you know, you turn up the music real loud and try to pretend like it's your totally. voice, but it is most definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a similar one. So I, I am a, a hack of a musician, so I can do it and I can sing a little and stuff. But I always wanted to like really be able to sing, right? Like yep. when you hear, when you hear, you know, I don't know, Jimmy Page and you hear, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Robert Plant, rather. Um, you know, it's funny because, like, you, I went to Nashville and I went to the Santa's Pub. And, of course, it's just like that That place is exploding with talent. And, you know, certain certain cities, just unbelievable talent. And, God damn it, if, like, the people at that karaoke bar weren't just absolutely ripping stuff like Freddie Mercury, Whitney Houston, and all that. Yeah. And it, it kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh, man, there's just, like, <laughs> insane talent around here. I felt super bad for them because they're clearly did they didn't make it, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it's like it's a roll of the dice, and like you can be just you can just be riddled with talent, and you, you know your friends and family is like, oh my god, you got to go to Nashville. You're gonna get you get discovered, and like you know, twenty years later, they're singing at Santa's Pub. Holy <laughs> shit! Might be like a curse, right, to be that talented at something. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
If your food is bad at a restaurant, do you say something? Oh, absolutely. You do? Yep. You send it back? Yeah, out? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and like you do it and, um, you know, because what do you want out of the experience? You, you, uh, you don't, you don't want to have to experience that for yourself. Right. But, you, you know, being the owner of restaurants, I wish our customers would tell us if they've got feedback for us. They weren't happy. We like tell us we will we'll always want to try to make it better. Totally. And if you go back and it's the same thing the second time or third time, then like, OK, they they're don't not care. Yeah. You know, they didn't want your feedback it, then anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's but, you know, let's talk to each other. Let's be human beings, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, do you watch TV at all? Uh, they tend to be like, um, uh, in, in situations where I'm completely spent and you're just like, all right, I'm just going to watch six hours straight. Okay. I like series. that. Yeah. You know? I'm kind yeah. of the same. Yeah. Once I sit down and it's like, yeah, I need to do nothing for a bit. Get the brain doing something. Nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I need a little separation from my day. <laughs> so then what's your favorite TV show f- just from the last couple years? I don't know. You got anything that's like, oh no, this was, this one really did it for me. I don't really keep up uh, with current shows, but man, I just always go back to Arrested Development. Holy cow! It's just <laughs> it's just joke after joke and callback after callback. It's just it's like it's a, a show that I don't know that they'll be able to ever to make something like that again. Great show, absolutely great show. All right, one more, and this one is a beer question with a twist. Mm. Is it difficult to do what you do for a living? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, sometimes I now having kind of lived in this world for a little while, I really wish I had, I had the, the separation, um, that I had with my prior job, hmm. uh, because yeah, you're invested in your, in your work and you care about it. And, you know, you, you, uh, like spending time with your coworkers and colleagues who then of course become your friends. But when you leave at the end of the day, you kind of have a more clear separation from that. And that allows way more time and space in your head for your other, per, you know, your other priorities of which there are many. Like I said, kind of at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. um, being, a, being a good dad, being a good husband, son, friend, all those kinds of other things. And um, I struggle, yeah. as I'm sure lots of us do, with being able to kind of turn it off. Absolutely. At the end of the day. And, and I really love what I do. And that's that what makes it even more difficult because I just want to keep working on the stuff that I'm doing. It's so interesting, exciting. And like, I, I'm, I'm more excited today than I was five years ago. Even there's just so much cool stuff that we're able to do. And like our, our, our list of, you know, aspirations continues to get bigger um, as we go, not because we want to be big or get big. It's just want to do deeper, more meaningful stuff. And we're now at the time that we're able to kind of really dig in on that, on those things. Um, but it tends to creep into my headspace for other things that are very important in my life. And I'm always working on that and always struggling with it. It's a fantastic answer for all entrepreneurs, by the way, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't like, I don't really dream about another career. I like what I've built. I like what I do. But there are definitely times where I long, and I would never want it really, but I long for a nine to five. Kind of what you're <laughs> saying. Like I long for like the, yeah, when when it's not my company, when five o'clock hits, I did what I got paid for. Now I'm going to go do what my brain wants to do, something completely different. So I can relate to it in that sense. Even though I would never really wish for that, I just sometimes long for it. 
You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe there's some value in, a, in an actual sabbatical, like going on vacation for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I can never actually turn my brain, you know, maybe for like a, a couple hours here and there, but man, it just keeps creeping back in. Yeah, you can you can actually see the need for why people take or need sabbaticals and the good that it yeah. can do for you. Yeah. 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 All right, JC. Well, thank you for uh, for playing along with that. So we got to know a little bit more about you. I appreciate it. Um, all right, that is really all the time that we have today. Like I said, you can go to trilliumbrewing.com to learn more. And uh, JC, thanks so much for hanging out with us and taking the time. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Justin. Thank you. Are you going to the Craft Brewers Conference this year? We got somebody else going. Um, got somebody else going. I've okay. got a whole bunch of stuff on my plate for uh, mostly distilling, actually. Good. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll have to follow up on that, too, then. And learn, learn about the many projects of Trillium. All right. Thank you so much, JC. Uh, right now, you can go to trilliumbrewing.com to learn more. You can also go to thebrewingnetwork.com to listen to all of our other shows, as well as look for your tickets to Spring Brews Festival right here in Concord, California. It's happening rain or shine, so get your tickets now. Uh, we got a lot more coming up. Uh, we're also going to be at the Craft Beer Summit. Uh, that's next week. So uh, if you didn't get your tickets for that, go to californiacraftbeer.com and hang out with me there. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and your beer. The Session is a production of The Brewing Network and brought to you by More Beer. Check them out at morebeer.com. Find more content and live video of this show on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brewingnetwork. For sponsorship opportunities and information, please reach out to advertising at thebrewingnetwork.com. To reach our hosts, contact feedback at thebrewingnetwork.com. Brewing Network.